Welcome to Sibylline Podcasts, part of our insight series where we aim to provide relevant, timely and actionable analysis in a discursive format. We hope you enjoy listening and welcome any feedback. Please visit our website for more insight series updates. And as always, like, subscribe and share. Hello and welcome to Sibylline Podcast Series. I'm Valeria Scuto, Middle East and North Africa analyst, and I will be joined by our Middle East and North Africa associate analysts, Rhiannon Phillips and Anastasia Chisholm, to discuss the most recent missile and drone attacks by the Iran-backed Yemeni Houthi rebels, which have targeted the UAE over the past week, amid an escalation in the Yemeni conflict. Thank you very much for joining in today. The most recent Houthi attacks come amid, as we were saying, an intensification of the fighting in Yemen's disputed territories, where the Saudi-led coalition forces joined by local militia groups, including the UAE-backed Giants Brigade, continue to make considerable gains against the Houthi rebels in eastern and southern provinces, namely Marib, which represents the last stronghold of Yemen's internationally recognized government, towards which the Houthi rebels have launched an offensive since February 2021, and Shabwa, which has been recently actually liberated from the Houthi rebels. The uptick has resulted in both aerial and maritime attacks throughout this past month. We have several incidents of note, including the hijacking of a UAE-flagged cargo ship, the MV Ruwabi, in Red Sea waters near the, the port city of Hodeya, early January, and three separate drone and missile attacks on critical infrastructure in Abu Dhabi on 17th January. With the latest one being actually this past Monday, January 24th, which saw the interception of two ballistic missiles by Emirati Air Force, supported by U.S. Uh, forces as well. Yemen's civil war is in its seventh year, and so far it has resulted in failed peace negotiations and overall a worsening humanitarian crisis for Yemen, uh, affecting millions of people. But Anastasia, who are the Houthis and who are the parties involved in this conflict in Yemen? So the Houthi movement are a Shiite rebel group who are leading an insurgency against Yemen's internationally recognized government. With the group rising to particular prominence in the wake of the 2011 Arab Spring uprisings. So, in 2015, Saudi Arabia led a coalition of regional and international partners to retake territory in Yemen from the rebels. Coalition partners include the UAE, Bahrain, and Egypt, amongst others, with the coalition leading the majority of airstrikes against Houthi targets on Yemeni soil. Meanwhile, the US and the UK support the coalition largely through arms sales and weapons transfers despite public criticism as a result of the humanitarian implications of the intervention in Yemen. Meanwhile, the Houthis receive uh, Iranian backing and weapons, most notably missiles and drones, which has led to the conflict sometimes being labelled as a proxy war between Riyadh and Tehran. However, the degree to which Iran actually has direct control over the actions of its so-called proxy is very much debatable. But to summarise, the conflict in Yemen is as much a domestic insurgency against an internationally recognised government as it is a war characterized by significant external, international and regional involvement, which really makes it all the more complex. Thank you, Anastasia. Yeah, definitely a number of moving parts. And the UAE has withdrawn its troops uh, in 2019, and they have retained only a small counterterrorism contingent on the ground and have claimed in the past to not be involved in any anti-Houthi operations. But it has recently ramped up its air operations and actually support to anti-Houthi groups, as we were mentioning. The Giants Brigades appears to be part of a joint Emirati-Saudi strategy, 
which has yielded successful results on the ground, um, seemingly provoking the Houthis to retaliate. So, Rhiannon, considering what has happened in the UAE over the past weeks, what are the implications for businesses and for the wider security environment in the Emiratis? Yeah, thank you, Valeria. So there's no doubt that this is an incredibly rare attack and, and one that's prompted not only an international support, but also a lot of questions on the ground. So with regards to the immediate implications, it's actually still quite early to tell. But the UAE, you know, it's a primary regional hub for tourism and trade and has historically been relatively safe from Houthi threats, with its neighbour Saudi Arabia bearing the brunt of aggression, particularly in southern border areas, including Jazan and Azir. And as such, events over the past two weeks have certainly unsettled businesses and prompted Abu Dhabi to kind of promote a hardened security posture to, to retain this investor confidence that it's trying so hard to promote. And not only that, but reassure, you know, expatriate communities and residents that they are still in a secure operational environment. This comes as the UAE MOD, the, the Joint Operational Command, confirmed the authenticity of, of a video, um, some might call it, uh, circulating across various media outlets, local and international, um, showing the destruction of the alleged Houthi launch missile. So whilst it's true that there may be kind of an element of greater calm in the aftermath of the assaults by mainly promoted by authorities, you know, future escalations and further attacks will definitely deter holidaymakers from visiting in the country in the coming months. And this worst case is that expatriates may consider even getting away from their postings or relocating. However, this is only likely, as I said, in the event of greater frequency of attacks or more successful strikes on the part of the Houthis, which is something that authorities will be very, very keen to avoid. And then the second half of your question in terms of the overall security environment. The missile attack both this week and last week indicate possible advances in Houthi capabilities and their ability to particularly launch long range missiles, considering, you know, the UAE is still considerable distance away from Yemen. And so this increases the risk that we may see future aerial attacks, particularly on critical national um, or economic assets in, in the coming weeks. However, in the grand scheme of things, the security environment in the UAE is, is likely to be largely unaffected by recent developments in the immediate term, as the UAE definitely will seek to bolster monitoring and air defence capabilities to address this elevated threat. And this is looking both internally and externally as well. Thank you. Yes, indeed, as you were mentioning, these two attacks have been the first attacks to be confirmed. Reportedly, the Houthis had struck the UAE back in 2018, but that was never officially confirmed by authorities. And surely these new incidents raise questions and concerns over the long range capabilities the group does have, as well as the existing difficulties in detecting drones. Anastasia, what have the Houthis targeted in the past and what are they likely then to target in the, the coming weeks or months? Sure. So last week, the Houthis struck a construction facility near Abu Dhabi International Airport, as well as uh, storage facilities of the Abu Dhabi National Oil Company, which caused uh, fuel tanker trucks to explode, killing at least three and injuring others. And after the attack, a Houthi spokesperson released a statement claiming that the rebels were planning further attacks on vital sites or installations, warning civilians and foreign firms to leave the city. Now, rebels are unlikely to directly target civilian infrastructure, though they have warned that they will respond in kind to any escalations in the conflict in Yemen. But it's likely that the Houthis expect damaging retaliation for any significant civilian losses and are to a degree engaging in a game of brinkmanship with the UAE and Saudi Arabia. However, likely targets include oil facilities, airports, 
military installations and bases, as well as other critical infrastructure facilities such as port terminals and potentially telecoms, amongst others. Consequently, businesses operating in these critical sectors will face direct threats, as well as risk of collateral damage to facilities and bystander risks for foreign and local personnel. Uh, Indeed, you were mentioning the escalation in the eastern and southern provinces, and there have been a number of Saudi-led coalition attacks, in particular one on a detention facility, which supposedly was a temporary migrant holding center, which resulted in a significant number of civilian casualties, which seemingly has prompted the, the Houthi attack of this past Monday. How do you see, Anastasia, the conflict progressing or not looking ahead? So on a longer term note, when we consider movements in the past month, we've really witnessed elevated activity on the part of the UAE-backed Saudi-led coalition force in Yemen, who've made advances against the Houthis in eastern and southern provinces. And in the coming weeks, we can really see conflict on the ground begin to escalate, in particular with coalition forces carrying on conducting airstrikes, targeting rebels, and also really looking to destroy military facilities, including vehicles and weapons storage facilities, particularly in the provinces of Marib and Sadaq. Thank you very much. Yes, we will definitely be following closely these developments in the next couple of weeks. And the the ramping up of the coalition military activity in the country and therefore the, the attacks in the UAE have or will soon prompt the direction of the Washington debate over what will be the best way forward with regards to U.S. policy in Yemen. And many expect a shift in sort of Biden's initial commitments, or at the very least, a response from from the U.S. So, Rhiannon, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, so a notable shift in Washington's Middle East and foreign policy wouldn't actually, I think, at this stage be a massive shock. Recent events will actually provide Washington with an opportunity to kind of secure their position as that security guarantor in the Middle East particularly after you know, months of rising tensions with Riyadh over America's thinning of troops on the ground. As you can imagine, in light of Afghanistan and, and the ongoing possible withdrawal of, of US troops from Iraq more broadly. But this policy shift would certainly address this feeling of abandonment held by many Arab leaders as the region faces you know, not only the threat from Yemen, but wider Islamic state insurgencies and the general rise of religious militancy. And so, you know, this increased aggression by Biden would definitely illustrate a shift in his administration from one of diplomacy that he took in February of 2021 to a more aggressive stance. And his hand actually may be dealt in many ways. And and this would likely stem from, you know, growing domestic pressure to respond to this continued and persistent targeting of American businesses and assets in the region. And and this comes as we saw the recent targeting of the Al-Dafra airbase in Abu Dhabi this week. Indeed, there are many interests at play and President Biden will have to consider all of these uh, quite carefully. But one of the most vocal requests in the aftermath of the first attack from the UAE has been to request the redesignation of the Houthis as a a foreign terrorist organization by the, the US. And as this comes from a sort of swift reversal of Trump's decision to designate the group in his last sort of actions in his presidency, what would the broader spillover effects be uh, should the group actually return to the FTO list? Yeah, so as you said, the the Arab League are really pushing for the redesignation um, after they met on the 23rd of January. And, you know, it's difficult and 
maybe this kind of forecast what's going to happen, but you have the US Defence Secretary releasing statements outwardly naming this as a terrorist attack in such statements. And so the rhetoric is definitely there. But equally, the designation of the group, as you said, as a terrorist organisation does kind of make the prospect to the dialogue and peace agreement increasingly less likely as this hardening of kind of an international stance won't provide much room for agreement or a diplomatic solution. Equally, we can't forget that Yemen is one of the world's most awful humanitarian crises and disasters. And I think this is often forgotten about when we're speaking about kind of strategic and tactical uh, implications. But one of the main reasons for Biden's revoking of the designation in, in February 2021 was to address this and to try and ease this crisis. And so the redesignation will be a real concern for NGO workers and personnel on the ground, as well as US aid agencies and, and similar NGOs facing this reduced operational space. And also not forgetting the legal complications around providing aid, which after a redesignation threatens to be illegal and providing some relief to Houthi controlled areas. And, and these are certainly areas where you have the, the highest casualties and the highest death tolls as well. Thank you. Also, these attacks happen as Gulf countries have had actually started to see a thawing in their regional relations, as well as opening up uh, diplomatic sort of channels with Iran. But clearly, these recent events have implications for these, as well as broader ones with regards to the ongoing uh, nuclear talks. Anastasia, what can you tell us about this? So with regards to the Gulf, Abu Dhabi and Riyadh will certainly expect the rest of the GCC to stand behind them, as many have already been quick to condemn the attacks. But after years of tense relations, this may actually provide an opportunity to enhance regional cooperation, specifically with Qatar, who could provide Saudi Arabia with much needed supplies of Patriot missiles as the kingdom faces a possible shortage in its own stock. Aside from Qatar, wider Gulf states equally support greater regional and international cooperation in efforts to mitigate the likelihood of spillover effects, including uh, their energy sectors, supply chain routes, and the volatility in the maritime sphere. Meanwhile, as for Iran, Yemen can really be seen as the ultimate proxy war between Saudi Arabia and Tehran. So developments certainly threaten to fuel regional tensions with Iran and jeopardize securing a nuclear deal. The recent interception of a vessel by US Navy fleet stationed in Bahrain highlights Iran's persistent backing of the Houthis, as American forces noted the ship was transiting from Iran on a known smuggling route towards Yemen. And the ship was carrying 40 tons of a urea fertilizer, which is often used to manufacture and develop explosives. So increased pressure from a disgruntled Saudi Arabia will complicate Washington's ability to resume diplomatic engagement with Tehran. And their failure to secure a nuclear deal will have real negative implications for both regional and international security prospects. And this will particularly heighten risks to businesses operating in the maritime sphere, as we see potential hostilities towards commercial shipping vessels registered to the US and allies, as well as an uptick in potential cyber warfare. And Rhiannon, what part does Israel, if any, have to play in this? They are clearly, in many ways, an interested regional actor. Yeah, definitely. So Israel will 100% be watching closely on developments in the region. And, you know, the Houthis have a real vendetta against Israel. Houthi leadership is often, you know, right from the very beginning in in the early 90s, spurted anti-Semitic and anti-Israel messaging in their propaganda videos. And and so it's it's very much in Israel's interest for this conflict not to spill over. And equally, despite relations with Riyadh and Tel Aviv remaining tense, 
the normalization of relations between Bahrain and Abu Dhabi with Tel Aviv in recent years may actually, again, provide an opportunity to extend security provisions and secure their defense mechanisms, which will be, you know, some of the GCC's state's priorities at this time. I guess the greater question, though, is whether Riyadh's hand will be forced into the greater cooperation with Tel Aviv. As Annie mentioned before, um, there is a significant shortage of, of missile and other defence capability shortages at the moment. And so there might be this sort of mutual hatred over a regional enemy towards both the Houthis and, and also their wider enemy, which is Iran. So this will kind of determine as well how the nuclear deal goes. And it's something that Washington is also going to have to consider, you know, when we bring in the US into this again, when they go to the drawing table with Iran on nuclear talks. again. Washington are going to have to try and really balance this delicate sphere of regional tensions to try and get this desirable outcome for all parties going forward. Thank you. So just as a small forecast for the the coming weeks, what uh, can businesses expect and what are some of the, the broader regional developments that we could be seeing? So as I mentioned at the very beginning, this is, I think it's very important to, to remember that this is a rare attack. And whilst it you know, illustrates a shift in Houthi willingness to, to really cause disruption, and it's a clear step up from their former capabilities, it's important to acknowledge that this attack hasn't happened in silo. And, and what happens in the next couple of days and weeks is always going to be inextricably linked to what's happening in the ground in Yemen. Future attacks will still be in retaliation for wider conflict as you know, the push in insurgencies by coalition and UAE-backed forces will take the conflict to another regional front. And this regional front has this time, unfortunately, been the UAE. Houthi leadership, they've warned of future attacks and want to instill this narrative of panic, particularly amongst expatriate and local populations who have since felt very safe. And so we are going to see in a clear acceleration, and we have already seen a clear acceleration in efforts from certainly the GCC side to tighten both internal and external security and defence capabilities, definitely with more involvement from the US and potentially the UK and wider allies, as we've spoken about. Coalition forces will seek to kind of conduct attacks on suspected storage facilities and then also to deplete Houthi capabilities from this side. And we can see an intensification in in most regards for tit-for-tat attacks in southern borders back to Saudi Arabia, as I mentioned, and Jazan and Azia. And what this incident has done in particular is gain this international attention to a conflict that I believe has often gone unmonitored and under the radar. I've had conversations with US Secretary of State Tony Blinken and the thrusting of these attacks into the limelight may actually set a stage for momentum as well as the UAE's new position on the UN Security Council as of last year. It may push this momentum for kind of acceleration of developments in Yemen. The question, I I guess, the million dollar one is whether this is going to be military momentum or whether this is going to constitute efforts to regain some sort of diplomatic resolution. This remains to be seen, but obviously, as we've spoken about earlier, this may be complicated by the redesignation of the group as, as terrorists. And it certainly doesn't look as though the fighting on the ground is going to end anytime soon. And so I think for now, the immediate response is going to be an elevation of defensive capabilities to deal with such attacks and to try and resume some calm in these countries in the face of possible future attack for for businesses and for personnel and assets on the ground. Well, thank you both very much. Let's see what will happen in the coming weeks. And I look forward to discussing this topic in future. And now a look at the events coming up this week. Rhiannon, what are we expecting? 
On the 28th of January, there's going to be a deployment of additional police in Bogota in Colombia ahead of 28th January demonstrations. This is marking nine months since the start of the national strike process. There will be moderate risks of domestic unrest and violent confrontations in sites across the city. From the 31st of January until the 6th of February, it's the Spring Festival, celebrating the Chinese New Year period in China, Hong Kong and Taiwan. This is the most important holiday period of the year and typically associated with high levels of domestic travel. The threat of Omicron and the zero tolerance approach from mainland Chinese government increases the risk of domestic travel restrictions being implemented throughout this period. On the 27th of January and the 1st of February in Nigeria, the Nigeria Labour Congress has called for nationwide protests on three dates to denounce the removal of fuel subsidies. NCL representatives had warned protests could take place earlier in January should authorities increase fuel prices. Potential protests in Abuja, Lagos and Port Harcourt are likely um, causing direct disruptions to the movement of goods and local transportation. There is possibility of violent clashes with security forces in cities, and this will elevate the risk to staff security. And finally, until the 18th of February, President Kais Saeed extends state of emergency in Tunisia. This measure grants authorities enhanced powers to ban back gatherings and censor media, having been extended multiple times. As such, this will strengthen the ability of security forces to suppress domestic dissent in the coming weeks amid mounting government sentiment against Saeed. And for further information, you can contact us at info at sibyline.co.uk. At